Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing on Team Human today, psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist, and psychedelics researcher, Dr. Julie Holland. When we think of sort of the classical psychedelics, it's not always the sort of pleasant, goofy, loopy experience. Sometimes we really are being shown deep inner truths or really the way the world is. Dr. Holland will be explaining the role of psychedelics in helping people gain the information and awareness they need to become more fully human. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. In 1968, psychedelics evangelist Timothy Leary gave a series of lectures at UCAL Berkeley in which he talked about everything from the erotic life to dropping out. In the question and answer period after one of the speeches, a young woman stood up to ask for some advice. She'd recently engaged in her first psychedelic experience, and she felt she understood things about people and the world that she didn't know before. She saw how we were all connected and how conventional understandings of reality were so limited and predetermined. What should I do now, she wanted to know. Leary responded with just three words. Find the others. It's among the smartest things he ever said, and no more applicable to psychedelics than to any human journey. Find your fellow travelers, 
you know, the others who've woken up, become aware, and seen through the silliness that keeps us trapped in our individual divisive reality tunnels. Find your kindred mutants and visionaries on the path toward social justice, universal enlightenment, or even just divine fun. And what you'll find out is that your comrades at arms may be less the means to an end than the very point of the whole thing. The mission is the excuse to find one another. And that solidarity is both the real prize and the most resilient defense against disenfranchisement and shame. You know, we have each other. That's why Martin Luther King had people sing in the church when they were being arrested. It stopped the police in their tracks. Singing is resistance? No, not just singing, but singing together. It's the freaks at the table in that old supposedly horror movie. We accept you, we accept you, one of us, one of us. The greatest gift the freaks could offer was acceptance into their community. Of course, in that story, the beautiful circus performer refused her honorary admission to their ranks, showing herself to be the only truly freakish one amongst them. It's the resistance to be one of the many, part of the group, that works against our better interests as human beings. We're seduced by the highly customized news feeds of our social media platforms, as if Facebook really knows who we are. You know, we're isolated in our own separate filter bubbles by algorithmically curated posts, stories, and ads. Our biases are reinforced again and again until we become caricatures of ourselves, divided and polarized from people who should actually be our allies. The digital media landscape seemed to offer new paths for connectivity with others near and far. People like ourselves and those completely different. Yet businesses and politicians alike learn that the more solidarity we have with one another, the less dependent we are on them for meaning and purpose. And stuff. So they prefer to message us individually, set us up to compete against one another for likes and retweets instead of truly connecting or even listening to one another. We learn to define ourselves more by who we hate than who we love. It's our distinctions that comfort us more than our similarities. At least I'm not one of them. But it's them over there, those ones that seem different in some other box. They're the ones who are the very others we should be seeking out. That's really what find the others means, after all. If they're truly the same as you, then they're not really other at all. Solidarity in a divisive, digitally stratified era such as ours means reaching across those illusory divides. Yes, you know who I'm talking about reaching over to. First, to those who seem much like ourselves in affect or spirit, but then to those increasingly distant. I'm suggesting that perhaps those very differences have been constructed by those people and institutions who do not have our best interests at heart. The further away the other with whom you want to connect, the more voltage that's released in the contact. It's one thing to connect with your fellow protester. It's another to connect with the cop on the other side of the barricade. The truly other. That's the best part about finding the others. Once you've found them, they aren't really others anymore. That was a piece I wrote for the relaunch of XY Magazine. Available on newsstands near you. 
I'm Steve Lambert, and I'm the designated hitter for Team Human. <laughs> I'm Mushan Zeraviv, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Kira Dong, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, Dr. Julie Holland, the author of Moody Bitches, the truth about drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy, the pot book, A Complete Guide to Cannabis, Weekends at Bellevue, and Ecstasy, The Complete Guide, a comprehensive look at the risks and benefits of MDMA. So, Dr. Julie Holland, I met you, if I recall correctly, at a reception for a psychedelics pioneer Terrence McKenna, I think at Dan Levy's apartment or somewhere like that. I asked you out, and then I think the next day you told me you couldn't go out because you met the man of your dreams, who you ended up marrying that night. I did. Um, right. Alas. But I was still obviously captivated by you as a, as a person and a thinker and a writer and a doctor. So you've seen uh, drug use really from both sides, you know, from the from the side of a of a culture using drugs to sort of expand what we understand about the world, as well as people using drugs to either self-medicate or real drugs that you might prescribe in order to help their brain chemistry, you know, support them uh, better. So I guess what I want to start with is 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 uh, my inkling and the inkling of a lot of the people, I'm sure, who are listening to this broadcast. Sometimes we feel that using psychedelics or using pot or you know, marijuana or something like that recreationally is like this kind of bad thing because it's recreation. And it's almost hard for us to contextualize using herbs or chemicals for, for kind of a self-healing, you know, to right. do something good, that is something bad. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you reckon with that? The idea that, that you know, are psychedelics on, on some level, is there a way to use them that's good for us? I would say the short answer is yes. I think it's important to not think about dichotomies. You know, I, I really feel like this dichotomy is a false one. The dichotomy between what is recreational and what is therapeutic. Um, as a mm-hmm. psychiatrist, I would absolutely make the case that recreation is therapeutic um, and that it is a continuum Uh, And certainly people could take a prescription medicine that they're supposed to take medicinally and use it recreationally, and people can take recreational medicines and use them therapeutically, and um, it's not not so clear-cut to me. Right. So when – if Trump gets elected and someone – which he did – and then someone goes, oh, my God, I got to have a joint. What is that? <laughs> what well, is I definitely, that you know, I I am certainly hearing from patients who are in in the mode right now where they are soothing themselves with alcohol, with food, you know, with technology, with masturbation, w- whatever they have to do to sort of get over what has happened politically. So, um, I'm not surprised to hear that somebody needs to sort of smoke a joint so they don't totally freak out about what's happening. You know, one of the things that happens, though, sometimes with psychedelics is that it's not an escape at all. It's not that soothing. You're actually going to see more of what you don't want to see. You're you're going to sort of be forced to look deeply at things or be forced to see the big picture, like it or not. So I think that, you know, when we think of sort of the classical psychedelics of like, you know, LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, things like this, um, it's not always the sort of pleasant, 
goofy, loopy experience. Sometimes we really are being um, shown uh, some deep truths, whether they're sort of deep inner truths or, you know, the, really the way the world is working, things like that. And it uh, doesn't feel recreational and it, it probably doesn't even feel that therapeutic. But, I, you know, I would certainly contend that knowledge is usually uh, power and usually for good and that spending time with a different perspective or a different worldview, courtesy of psychedelics, is going to give you more knowledge. It's going to give you more information. You know, I use this analogy a lot of, of like pulling out and seeing the macro. Like if you're playing a video game and you're kind of going around in circles and your guy's not really moving and you pull out and you actually see the full map and you realize that you've just been going around in a circle in a corner and you need to turn around and head back out and then you can get over, you know, to where the prize is, whatever. Like it's a macro. And I think that psychedelics can help you pull out and see the big picture and see, you know, where you got stuck and where you're going in circles and, and help you sort of see your way out. That is therapeutic. It can also help you see the other, though. Uh, you know, if you get really stoned and watch a Donald Trump speech or, or take E or something and watch a Donald Trump speech, you start to understand, even as someone from the, you know, the Bernie Sanders side or the Hillary, you can go, Oh, I, I see. I feel like I, I really understand what they're saying. I understand the frustration. I, I understand the the desire to want to just flip the table over and right, all. Right. And I feel like these drugs on on a certain level, they help people try on other other mindsets, other perspectives. Well, you know, it certainly depends on the drug. And I think it is sort of an interesting premise, you know, to take MDMA and see if you really could kind of connect and have some empathy with Donald Trump. I mean, I look, you know, I put a lot of stock in what MDMA can do, but I don't know if, <laughs> if you know, it, for me, it would it would allow me to be like, I love him. You know, I get him. I'm not, I right. don't know. I mean, there are also these really interesting studies looking at when they give people MDMA or they give people oxytocin. Um, that you don't necessarily get this, I love everybody. You just get a strengthening of you're on my team, you're not on my team. You know, oxytocin mm -hmm. is, I mean, as much as people talk about oxytocin sort of bringing people together, it actually, it lends cohesion, but only if you identify as somebody that, you know, that person is on your side or on your team. And it, it could actually make you more aggressive and antagonistic against people that you don't see as being on your side. But then What's you look at something like uh, ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD, where, you know, these sort of classic uh, tryptamine hallucinogens. And a lot of times people will get this sense of like, we're all connected. You know, we are all one, even more than you would get that with MDMA. And, you know, and maybe in that situation, I'm having, I'm having trouble with the whole uh, empathy with, with Trump thing. Cause for me, right. it's, for me, it's very, very challenging. Right. But it's interesting. I mean, one drug sounds almost more evolved than the other, you know, because it was starting to make me think that, oh, is the only way we can really experience, you know, that that bond, that sort of tribal bond of togetherness is if there's some other tribe that we're against, you know, is it always an opposition or yeah. can it ever just be pure, you know, without that outsider? I think that people do sometimes have these very blissed out psychedelic uh, experiences where they really feel connected and unified with not only humanity and all of us on the planet, but, you know, even with like the universe and all of the other planets. So, you know, there's something called oceanic boundlessness that happens with psychedelics where, you know, it's just all in the soup, you know, and you're, it's, everything is connected. 
There's no boundaries. There's this tremendous cohesion. That is a really blissed out place to be. And I, I wish America had more of that. You know, I wish that we that we did see how we are all connected and we're all more alike than different. That would be good. I think our nation needs that, especially now. I mean, I think there's really big rifts in the sort of, you know, middle of the country and edges of the country. And it reminds me of like when the when George W. Bush got elected and people were making these sort of maps of like, you know, Jesus land being sort of like the whole sort of, you know, flyover central swath of the country. And then like United States of Canada, you know, around the edges. Uh, I do feel like we are a nation divided right now. And, you know, maybe there is a place for psychedelics in that kind of, you know, healing those rifts. Well, at least to start, um, I mean, you're you're both on the forefront and aware of the uh, the forefront of, of psychedelics research today. I mean, I know there was a big, dark, black couple of decades where no one was allowed to use anything. Yeah. But um, now there's some green shoots, right? I mean, is there is there truly, uh, you know, psychedelics or psilocybin or ecstasy research going on in the in the lab? And is it promising? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, Johns Hopkins has done a lot of work with psilocybin and some of their most promising work, two areas. One is that they've helped uh, chronic smokers who've never been able to quit, and they've helped them quit using psilocybin, which I think is really interesting. The other thing is they're looking at a, at a personality component called openness and showing that people who have these very intense mystical experiences with psilocybin score higher on this sort of uh, measures of openness, meaning that they're more open to change, more open to growth and changing behaviors. That stuff to me is really interesting. But there's there's MDMA research going on um, with post-traumatic stress disorder. The most recent development with PTSD MDMA research is now we're going to be working with couples where one member of the dyad has post-traumatic stress disorder, but both members will take MDMA and undergo MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Um, so that is sort of a new, exciting advance that's happening. And there's, Are you getting to do some of that yourself? So I'm, I'm the medical monitor for a lot of MDMA studies. So um, I'm sort of in charge of making sure that everything is done safely and, you know, all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted and just in terms of all the sort of medical issues. Um, are you like there in a lab coat taking their pulse and I stuff? I am not. I am not physically there, which is why yeah. I am able to be the medical monitor for uh, uh, more than one study. Uh, I am, you know, I'm reviewing all the protocols. I'm in, I'm involved in sort of helping to set up everything and make sure everything runs okay. And then if there's any issues, if somebody has some sort of a side effect or a problem, um, then I get on the phone with a with the principal investigator and we figure out how bad it is, what to do about it, how to record it, how to report it, this sort of thing. Um, you know, there's right. when it comes to uh, side effects, some things have to be reported right away, some things are no big deal, um, sort of helping to figure out what, what the category is of what's going on. I mean, the, the bottom line is that there have been very, very few adverse effects in anyone so far from these uh, studies, but they are very highly controlled um, environment and on obviously you know exactly how much MDMA you know you know exactly how many milligrams you know that it is pure there's no uh, overhydration there's no overexertion or or you know overheating or anything like that so and you know in this very contained environment these are really safe studies and they're designed very well with a lot of psychotherapy there's also you know the MDMA autism study out in in LA which is really interesting 
although I, they're not really publishing results yet, but they are running people through, and they're, I know that they are having sort of good experiences with the people that they're running through, looking at social anxiety and autism in adults. So there's a lot of psilocybin research going on. There's a lot of MDMA research going on. Cannabis is where we are stuck, <laughs> where there's nothing. Um, and it's very, you know, I, I do consider cannabis to be a psychedelic. I do think that it is uh, mind-manifesting which is sort of the original definition of psychedelic or mind opening. Um, and, you know, it may not be a major psychedelic like LSD, but I do think that it provides a lot of, in, even in terms of feeling connected, you know, feeling empathy, I think that, that cannabis really can have those kind of effects. So, but the, the cannabis PTSD study has been stalled out for years and years waiting to get cannabis from the government and, and waiting for this like NIDA monopoly to, finally go away, which really Obama did make make the night of Monopoly go away, which is pretty huge. But there still is no good source um, for cannabis to do these clinical research studies looking at whether it might be helpful in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, do you feel that, uh, do you feel that psychedelics are uh, not required, but, a, uh, but an essential experience on a person's sort of life journey? Or do you think it's just eh, good for some and not good for others? Well, I, look, I do think that, you know, you look at the Hopkins study where they really sort of measured, you know, how significant was your, you know, psilocybin experience. And, and people say, you know, it's one of the most most intense and important experiences of my life on a par with um, a spouse dying or a child being born, like very major life events. So I think people that have uh, full-on mystical experiences um, with psychedelics do feel like that it is an important life event for them. But there's obviously people who need to stay away from psychedelics. I mean, it can be very destabilizing for somebody with bipolar disorder or somebody with schizophrenia to take psilocybin or LSD or DMT. And I think, you know, even somebody who has very little sort of psychiatric history or psychopathology, there can be times um, in one's life where it's really destabilizing and a bad idea to do something like this. So, uh, you know, I feel like people need to be adequately prepared and sort of stable in what else is going on in their lives. Even where a woman is in her menstrual cycle can affect what kind of experience she's going to have with psychedelics. So, you know, there's sort of an optimal way to be prepared and be in a good place. Um, and, and obviously what you're taking, what you're ingesting, what the purity is. You know, psychedelics, the set and the setting matter as much or more than the actual drug you're taking. So yeah, as Timothy Leary tried to remind us. Yeah. yeah. So there are plenty of situations where either somebody is in a bad, bad way, sort of psychically or pharmacologically, and then that's a bad set, or there is a terrible setting where they're, you know, taking psychedelics on a, you know, a subway or a crowded club, and they're just not going to get the good experience that somebody would get when they're in sort of a, a research setting where every, every variable is sort of uh, accounted for. Yeah. I mean, there, it felt to me like in the 80s and 90s that kind of psychoactive drugs bifurcated and these drugs of a kind of personal, social and cultural transformation, drugs like LSD and marijuana and psilocybin and DMT and all these sort of exploratory drugs that were in some ways destabilizing to the dominant cultural frame. Yeah. Uh, because people think outside the box after that. Right. Um, that they were in some ways... Uh, replaced or by by drugs of social control, and I'm not saying that you know Prozac and and SSRIs and you know uh, 
these all the all the great Lexapro type drugs out there that they're bad for people, but they're uh, they're more about sort of maintenance of. Uh, uh, maintenance of cognitive dissonance rather than transformation. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the analogy I often use is that it's the difference between, you know, sweeping a bunch of dirt under the, under the rug over and over and just keep sweeping under the rug versus like, you know, take the rug out back and shake the hell out of it and vacuum the whole room. And I think that, you know, I, I do feel like the, the SSRIs do not just affect people individually, but they do affect society as a whole. I mean, there's more and more women who are taking SSRIs that make it harder to climax, harder to cry, and and make and make you sort of more complacent and whatever, it's all good. I'm just gonna keep puttering along. And and they, you know, you're not questioning the status quo. You're not you're not sort of bristling at somebody who says something inappropriate because you let it go because you feel okay, you know. And um, it, I, like what, what I say often is like you can't clean if you don't see the dirt. So you know, if we're all taking medicine that makes us feel like everything is fine, nothing's really going to get fixed and nothing's really going to change. So these antidepressants are the opposite of agents of social change, the way that psychedelics would be. And psychedelics allow you to sort of think outside the box. And I feel like the antidepressants make you feel like, yeah, you know, the box is okay. I like the box, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Good enough. Yeah, I don't like right. it, but The box whatever. is good enough. Right. Exactly. There really is this, this element of sort of complacency and meh, whatever. At least certainly when you're over-medicated with SSRIs, that is absolutely something that happens is you just get very complacent and you don't go after things you want because like everything is sort of okay right now. Like what, you know, what do I have to chase anything down for? And I also think honestly right. that this is something that really may happen. I have a lot of patients who are single, you know, they're in their late thirties, early forties. They would like to get married. They would like to have a baby. They're still single. They really haven't found anybody they're interested in, but they're also not pursuing anybody because when there's this feeling of satiation and satiety, like I have, I have everything I need. I'm wanting for nothing, which is what the SSRIs are all about. How are you going to go chase down something? You know, how are you going to have the angst and the desire and the obsessiveness of, you know, when you fall in love with somebody, you've got this sort of want you know, there's a basic desire and you're going after somebody that you want and you have this sort of a feeling of need. And if you're if you're satiated and you have no need, how are you going to go after anything or anyone? Right. Anything or, or create any cultural change. It's kind of like the yeah. old argument that, uh, you know, Anna Freud had with uh, Willem Reich back when he got kicked out of the psychoanalytic society, where he was saying, look, you, you're doing therapy so that people adjust to society rather than doing therapy so that people can change society. Right. You know, and one is I mean, one is harder, I guess. It's harder to be empowered and harder to yeah. have to go out there and change the world and realize, oh, it's it's not me. It was my family of origin. It's not me. It is my workplace. It's yeah. not me. It is neoliberalism. Right. You know, <laughs> it's it's harder to bring people right. to that. But, you know, uh, different herbs certainly help people differently with that. Yeah. I mean, do you. Are there places. Can people now. You can't just go find a good shrink and get. A, a psychedelic style therapy. Can you today? Not yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I mean, look, there, there are certainly underground therapists who are working with MDMA. There's underground therapists who are working with psilocybin. There are ayahuasca circles in every major city around the country and, and then some. So, you know, I think that there are opportunities for people to have psychedelic experiences 
if that's what they're looking for. But they're not going to be legal. They're not going to be above board. You know, there's very little actual above board research going on. I mean, it's really just Hopkins for psilocybin um, and right. just like two or three places around the country for MDMA. The problem with, you know, the whole sort of underground network is that it's not networked. It's not, you know, it's not easy to find people. It's all word of mouth. Right. Um, and then your setting is already compromised from the get go. If it's like, OK, this is illegal. If the cops come in while you're doing this, right. you get arrested. You know, right. That's the not setting, the best setting. Right. I mean, but that's America. You know, our setting, uh, you know, even with even with pot, you know, in New York City, it's not legal to smoke pot in New York City. Of course, you're going to be a little paranoid because it's the arrest capital of the planet. So we already have a situation where our drug policy is affecting our setting for sure. And, uh, you know, affecting the quality of our drugs. Absolutely. Right. And I'm, I don't see that ending anytime soon, you know? Yeah. I mean, where would you suggest, because I know we're coming to the end of our, our time with you, you've got to get back back to patients. And I heard the sirens in the background. Yeah. It reminded me of weekends at Bellevue, right. you know, the whole, <laughs> the, the excitement of that. Where can people sort of learn more and get involved really in the in the pursuit of this sort of cognitive liberty that 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 you're espousing? Well, I mean, it's funny because there is actually a, a there's a guy named Richard Glenbor who who has like a cognitiveliberty.org, which is a perfectly good place to check out. I'm, I'm you know, I'm like sort of a lifelong charter member of MAPS, MAPS.org, mm -hmm. if you want to learn more about psychedelic research and MDMA research. And for psilocybin, it's it's hefter.org, H-E-F-F-T-E-R. So MAPS.org, hefter.org. You can also very easily find me online if anybody yeah, and we're going to have all these links up on uh, up on the page with your uh, with your podcast. I mean that you know. And finally, before you go, there, it, it seems rare to me that someone can get through the entire medical training, you know, to be indoctrinated into become a medical doctor and a psychiatrist on top of that, and still maintain what uh, what is not an anti institutional bias, but you manage to hang on to some of the uh, the the beliefs and cultural frames that preceded your medical work. And now you're in a position to fight for them from a position of authority rather than just some kid in the street saying, you know, we want to take our drugs. Um, yeah. how, how hard was it to stay, you know, true to who you are at the same time that you are so uh, enmeshed in institutional medicine? Well, I, I'm actually pretty lucky in that I'm not very enmeshed now, and I really can speak my mind. And I've, I've been lucky, even when I was at Bellevue and was on the faculty at NYU School of Medicine, I really wasn't squelched very much and I could speak my mind. But now I'm no longer on the faculty. I'm not at Bellevue. I'm a complete free agent. Nobody tells you what to say or what not to say. I, you know, I occasionally get some notes from my husband on what I should or shouldn't or should have or should have not said. But I, you know, I can speak my truth with, uh, at this point anyway, not a lot of negative repercussions. And I hope, you know, we're not entering into a fascist regime where that's going to be a problem. Yeah. I guess that's, you know, to be seen. And on that happy note. <laughs> yeah. On that happy note, but thank you so much for joining Team Human. You're one of the greatest, sweetest humans I know. Thank you. And uh, it's reassuring, even in dark times, to know there's uh, someone like you actually thinking about how we think and feel and, uh, uh, you know, looking to make this a, a better experience for everybody. Yes. I'm standing here in the darkness with my little candle. <laughs> we got a lot of there's a lot of us holding those candles a thousand too. points of light doug <laughs> yeah the last great president right. all right oh man 
Thank you for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks to all of our new listeners who have emailed, tweeted, and supported Team Human with donations through the website. Special thanks to Meetup for their underwriting support. Start your own Team Human Meetup at meetup.com. Thanks to Aaron Dignan at theready.com. Our friends at Zago designed our logo and supported Team Human with an underwriting donation. And special thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt for sharing the music you heard on today's show. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.